Hello and thanks for streaming this episode from ACF Church. Our hope is that this word would encourage you to walk closer with God and with your local church. We hope you consider partnering in the work God's doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you'd like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can do so safely on our website at acfak.org or by texting the amount to 907-341-4213. Now prepare your hearts to hear God's word. We've all got questions. According to Google, there are more than 3.5 billion searches per day. Everyone is looking for answers. But occasionally, someone asks us a question that sticks with us. The right question, at the right time, can flip our worlds upside down. We often don't know the full scope of a question until it tumbles around in our minds for a while. Over time, a good question will expose the secret, mysterious, and hidden parts of us that lie beneath the surface. Jesus asked hundreds of questions, but he already had all the answers. These rhetorical questions weren't for Jesus. They were for us. Man, good morning. I am Stuart. I'm one of the pastors here at ACF. There's just something about Morgan Freeman's voice that just like makes you feel happy and joyful in life, doesn't it? So I hope you're feeling good after hearing that. Um, to, we're going to continue on in a series we've been, we've been going through here at ACF called Rhetorical Questions. Uh, we are almost to the end. Pastor Brian will be back this next week uh, to finish out the series. We're going through these questions. Really, Jesus already knew the answer to the questions that he asked, but he's asking them to make a point. Uh, in the lives of the hearers, those people who heard uh, would have known what he was driving at. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Today we're going to look at the question that he asked, uh, the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, and he asked, who touched my clothes? So we're going to look at that. Uh, and we're going to turn to Mark chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 24. And if you have your Bible, go ahead and open that up. Uh, you can also use the app, the ACF app. It'll be in there. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you don't have a Bible and you would like a Bible in the seat in front of you somewhere, there should be a Bible. That is now yours. You can take that with you. We'd love to make that a gift from ACF to you uh, so that you can look into God's Word for yourself as well. And out of respect for the Word, would you go ahead and stand with me as we read the passage this morning? We're going to be Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 24. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we uh, are amazed at what you can do. 
Lord, you are a God of unlimited power. And yet, Lord, we struggle. Uh, we struggle on that all the time. And so, Lord, we seek, we seek you this morning. We seek your truth. And we ask, Lord, that you would reveal your truth to each and every one of us. No matter where we came into this room today, Lord, I pray that we would leave having come into your presence. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Many of you know that I uh, grew up in Tucson, Arizona. I'm originally from West Virginia, but I grew up uh, in Tucson in the desert down there. And I went to the University of Arizona, and I was too cheap to move out while I was going to school, so I lived at home because you got free food, free laundry, uh, a lot of benefits there, so it was awesome. And uh, I graduated in 1993, and uh, now some of you are going to do the back math and try to figure out, I'm just old. And if you, don't, if you think I'm not old, then you're old. Uh, that's just the way this works, I guess. And so in 1993, I graduated from the University of Arizona, and over the summer, um, I was working odd jobs and just trying to get enough money together so that I could move uh, up to Colorado Springs, because for me, that was like in my heart's dream was to be in the middle of a forest, uh, and I thought uh, Colorado was green and wet and awesome, and I realized that it wasn't once I moved up there. It was really dry. It was green, but it was dry, um, not like Alaska at all, uh, and, and so I remember waking up one morning and um, having trouble breathing. What you may not know about me also is I've struggled with asthma my whole life. And not just like I run a little bit and have a hard time recovering, um, but the first 10 years of my life, I was in and out of the hospital uh, as, as a child. And most of my childhood memories, in fact, were good ones um, in the hospital, waiting for my, my, my dad or my mom to come visit me, uh, getting to know the nurses and the doctors, uh, re forgetting literally who was in my class at school. Uh, it was a big deal for me, and somewhere around age 10, they figured out the medication, or the new medication came online, and it was able to, to manage my asthma. So I never gave it a second thought, but it was a daily thing for me. I always had my little albuterol rescue inhaler thing, and some of you know what that is. And, uh, but I remember waking up on, it was probably a June morning in Tucson, so it was a nice brisk 95 outside, and I remember waking up, as I normally did, with a, a, a tight chest and having trouble breathing, so I took my rescue inhaler and went in and kind of kept doing my normal routine in the morning. Uh, and, you know, graduating from college, it was probably about, you know, 10.30 in the morning at this point, super early. And I just remember about, you know, 30 minutes, an hour later, I wasn't getting any better. And so I was still having a tightness in my chest. So I went and, well, I'll take another, another dose of that stuff. So I took another dose of my albuterol <clears throat> and uh, waited another few minutes and, and it wasn't really getting any better. And so after a couple of hours, I remember going into my mom and telling her, um, I think you need to take me to the hospital. So she did. And I spent the next three days in intensive care. And I remember laying there thinking, really, God, I'm in the best shape of my life. Like, I'm in really good shape. I'm active. Um, and now I'm, I'm getting ready to move. I have my hopes and dreams in front of me. And I'm, getting, and I'm lying here in the hospital bed wondering, like, like, for real, in my head, I'm thinking, Am I going to walk out of this hospital, or is this it? Like, you know, I'm 23, and I'm, I'm going to be done. Um, now you can really calculate my age. It's a huge interruption in my life. It was, it was a really big, not even just a speed bump in my plans to move, although I eventually did move, um, and I didn't die then. Just so in, in case you're wondering, I, I recovered. Um, but I'm here today. Thank you. Um, but to better understand the story, we go back to Mark, uh, the story of this woman who has a, a bleeding for 12 years. It's important to look at the context of, of where we find kind of this story tucked away in other, other stories that are going on. 
Jesus and his disciples had just gone to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they had met up with uh, a man who they, we were told is possessed by many demons, and uh, Jesus sends them out. And they ask, instead of being like just kind of banished from this person, he heals this man, um, who basically exhibited by being just a crazy dude, uh, and the whole town knew it. They go into a, a herd of pigs. Are you remembering this story? It's kind of a crazy story. If you don't think this is a crazy story and Scripture's not interesting, then I don't know what will. Uh, because the, the demons go into the pigs, and the pigs decide to run off the edge of the cliff into the ocean, and they drown. And we're told that in Scripture. So the, the townspeople kind of freak out, because obviously they're pig herders, or at least part of them are, and that's a big part of their livelihood is just run into the ocean as a result of this dude showing up on their shore and healing this guy. So they kind of maybe politely, maybe not politely, imply that Jesus should, you know, go somewhere else and not be there. So he leaves, goes back across the Sea of Galilee, and hits the shore, and a big crowd comes around, because Jesus is getting more and more prominent in the region. People know who he is, they kind of expect his coming, uh, and they want to just be near him, they want to listen to him, they want to see what he might be doing next. So this huge crowd comes in, and I kind of picture, um, I went to a U2 concert uh, back when I was in college, and it was up in Phoenix at Firebird Lake, and there was like 40,000 people at this U2 concert. And I remember in the middle of it, we were probably 200 yards from the stage, so we thought we had a great seat. Well, standing, it wasn't a seat. And I remember I could pick my feet up off the ground, and I wouldn't fall. It was crowded, and I thought it was the best thing ever. But people were still kind of, you know, moving through, but it was slow, and everybody had to kind of let them do it. It was... It was a crowd, and I kind of picture maybe not that quite that intense of a crowd around Jesus, but it was still people bumping, people trying to get close, say hi. Um, and Jairus comes up to Jesus, a man named Jairus, who is a leader in the synagogue, which is the local Jewish church. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, my daughter is, is sick and she's dying. Like, we, we don't think she's going to make it. Would you come and pray over her and, and see if you can heal her? Jesus says, yeah, I'll go with you. So they go off, crowds kind of following, but Jesus is on a mission with Jairus. In the middle of that, this woman comes up and touches Jesus' garment, and Jesus turns around and says, who touched my clothes, who touched my garment, kind of stops, and in the middle of that, as that's going on, one of Jairus' servants at his house comes up to him and says, hey, don't bother him anymore, your daughter's died. So there's no, nothing else he can do for you, just, just leave him alone. And it's amazing, like in that moment, though, Jesus still has compassion for Jairus because he says, uh, don't doubt, just believe. Don't fear, just believe. He tells that to Jairus, like, and he's, Jairus has got to be going through all kinds of emotions at that moment, but Jesus takes the opportunity to go ahead and encourage him a little bit more. So they go ahead and continue on after Jesus interacts with the woman in our story, and they go to Jairus' house. And they've already got mourners coming in, so obviously they knew she was going to die, and they'd already prepared for that. And they laugh at Jesus because he says, well, she's not, she's not dead, she's just sleeping, and he's just, he's getting ready to do something incredible. So he goes into the room and tells her to, to get up, and she does. And this little girl, this 12-year-old girl, who is Jairus' only daughter, rises from the bed. So we just see really two incredible things um, going on in, with Jesus in this story. And the thing that I want us to see, uh, the first thing I want us to see, and it's on your, your notes if you want to fill in and follow along, interruptions in our day are God's design for our life. Interruptions in our day are God's design for our life. There's a lot of interruptions going on in this story. 
the little girl, 12-year-old girl, probably doing 12-year-old girl things, playing and, and having fun and dreaming, and she gets deathly sick. So she's interrupted by this illness. Jairus, her dad, who's probably got, I don't know, synagogue things to do, he's interrupted by this illness uh, in his daughter, so he has to go then try to find Jesus. Jesus is interrupted by Jairus. He gets up back from the shore. He's got a big crowd. He's probably got, you know, other Messiah saving the world kind of things he could be doing, maybe even just resting. Uh, I don't know, but Jairus comes up, interrupts him. So now they're on their way to Jairus's house. The woman comes in and, and who's been interrupted for 12 years by a, a disease and touches Jesus's garment. So that interrupts Jesus. Jesus really interrupts the whole deal by pointing out the woman, which then interrupts Jairus's like hope of healing his daughter. And then ultimately, Jesus goes back to the little girl and interrupts her who's dead and interrupts her in death and brings her back to life. A lot of interruptions going on in this story, right? And I'm sure Jared, uh, Jairus was uh, in the middle of this as Jesus stops, was a little frustrated because he's kind of desperate, right? It's his only daughter. And I got five little girls at home. And I, if any one of them got deathly ill, I would be desperate. And I know any one of you would be the same. So he's got his daughter who's sick. He's finally got what he wants. He's taken a risk because he's probably a leader, a lay leader in the synagogue uh, of, of the Jewish uh, community. And if you remember anything reading through scripture, you know that the Jewish leaders weren't super fond as a group of people of Jesus. He was kind of shaken up their authority. And so they were uh, not the most uh, enthusiastic about Jesus. And so for him to be a leader in the synagogue uh, and to go up to Jesus and basically beg him to come and, and be with his daughter to heal her, that was a big risk for him. He probably wouldn't have been super popular, but he was willing, really, to take that kind of radical action because he was desperate. The woman. Uh, if you anything about Jewish culture, that we don't know what the bleeding was. You can use your imagination. Um, but she's had bleeding for 12 years. And in that culture, in the Jewish culture, a Levitical law, any kind of bleeding would make you ceremonially unclean. Ceremonially. I couldn't say that either on Wednesday. Still can't say it. Um, ceremonially unclean. And what that means is that she wouldn't have been able to go to the synagogue to worship God in a group. She wouldn't have been able to go out in any public gatherings because she was unclean and anyone she came in contact with was also unclean. So coming up behind Jesus and touching his garment for her is probably, she's probably trying to be super sneaky and, and stealthy. Not in an evil kind of way, but just in a I'm risking a lot here. And most people that, that uh, have looked at this passage, they also say that the penalty for her knowingly making other people unclean in that culture was, was severe punishment and more likely stoning. And not like getting high on herbs or psychedelic stoning, but take you outside the city in a field and get some baseball sides or bigger rocks and start pitching them at her until she's dead. That was okay for what she was doing. So she's taking a huge risk, and so she's probably trying to, like, disguise herself, because if anyone had pointed her out, she would have had to, you know, take off, because she's making anyone she touched in that crowd unclean, and knowingly touching a Jewish leader's garment to make him unclean would also be punishable. So she was hoping, I think, to be invisible, and Jesus stops in the middle of that and points her out. So she's got to be thinking a couple things. If you're her, First, you sneak in there. That's a huge risk. She's risking everything. She's already spent everything she's got. She's kind of desperate, got nothing else to, to lose, right? She finally touches his garment, and she's healed. She knows it. Like the it says the bleeding stopped instantly, 
And she knew inside her body that she was healed. So she's got to be feeling like, yes, I did it. And in the very next moment, she hears, the, hears Jesus say, who touched me? Who touched my clothes? And turns around and starts looking. And he's not going to let the issue ride. His disciples are like, that's a huge crowd. It'd be like a U2 concert. Like, who touched me? You know, it's like someone could pick my pocket right now. And I would have no clue um, at all. And, and that's what they're telling Jesus. Like, people are touching you all over the place. You're walking through this crowd. They're bumping you. They're touching you, shaking your hand. They're just trying to be near you. And you turn around and say, who touched me? Who touched my clothes? And so, but Jesus pushes the point. And so she's got to be thinking in her mind, like, really, God? I just got healed. And now you're going to point me out. I'm going to get punished or maybe even worse. I'll die. After 12 years of suffering, it's going to end in this. And so Jesus' word to her, Right off the bat, when he says daughter, it's the only time in scripture Jesus refers to anyone as daughter. And it's a term of endearment. I think for him, he was wanting to make a very big point. She may have had this superstitious belief like, if I just touch the clothes, the clothes are magical and powerful. I can be healed. Like the prayer cloth sometimes we, we see on TV or something. And Jesus makes, I think, a couple of points here. First, I have the power to heal, so you're healed. Jesus had the desire to. Her faith made it, made it possible. But it wasn't, the, the healing that she got was, she got what she wanted, but it wasn't all that Jesus had to offer her. By pointing her out, first he shows her care and concern. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be free of your disease. He's kind of correcting her theology a little bit. It's not the garment. It's me. God has made you well. Your faith in God, in Jesus, has made you well. So he kind of corrects that a little bit. Goes the further step. Now this is public, so everybody like, would stop, and they're like, oh, I recognize her. And he's being kind and considerate. Go in peace, kind of the way to say you know, goodbye. Uh, but go peacefully. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a friendly term. See you later. Have a great day. Does that publicly. So no longer is she the outcast in this community. She's not looking in on society anymore. In that moment, he made a public declaration to her and in front of everybody else. You're part of it. You're, you're, uh, you're no longer unclean. You are made clean. Not just healed, but you're clean. Pretty cool. I think Jairus probably was, you know... Um, a little concerned too. And like I said, he probably faced pressures from his fellow leaders. And ultimately, he sees through this that encouragement that he needs uh, maybe to stand up boldly among his leaders because he gets to see his daughter healed. And maybe that was exactly what he needed to see from Jesus uh, to, to bolster his faith and to give him confidence in uh, his circles of influence. When I was in the ICU, sitting there trying to breathe, every breath a chore, and really wondering, like, at 23, am I done? I remember God distinctly speaking to me, and not, not verbally or didn't send me a, a memo or a text. It was just the, an impression in my mind that I got that I knew 100% was God. And what he said was, I hold every breath you take in my hand. I am in complete control of everything that goes on in your life. And at 23, I was super cocky. I thought I had the world by the tail. 
and I could do anything I put my mind to. And God said, if I want you to, if I'll allow it. That left, left, obviously left a lasting impression in, in my life. There's a theologian, uh, many of you are familiar with, uh, C.S. Lewis. And if you don't know him as a theologian, you might know him as the, the dude who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And Disney made these, these movies uh, recently really popular, and they did an awesome job. But he wrote them, um, and he had a, a, a really good friendship with another church leader, and they used to write letters back and forth. And someone along the line got those letters and published them in a, in a book. And so one of the, the lines that he makes to, to his friend is this. The truth is, of course, that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life. The life God is sending one day by day. What one calls real life is a phantom of one's own imagination. The interruptions aren't keeping you from living life. They are your life. And that's what I think we can learn, one of the things we can learn from this story today. The interruptions aren't keeping you from life. They are our life. The second thing I want you to to write down on the, the outline there and that we can see from this passage is that interruptions in our lives should take us to Jesus. The interruptions that we, we find ourselves experiencing in life should take us to Jesus. After 12 years of suffering, the woman, because of this, this bleeding, this disease that she had, was taken literally face to face with Jesus. Jairus, who had a daughter who was dying, was taken directly face to face with Jesus. I've been here at ACF maybe for coming up two years in October, actually. So it's coming up, uh, and we're super excited. Two years before that, uh, before I moved up here, uh, I was a youth pastor at a church, and that was over middle school, high school, and college. And so I was in charge of building groups and reaching out in the community and and discipling kids and uh, recruiting people to work with kids and all that stuff. And we were doing a great job. And what I really am proud of is that we were reaching really hard into the community and we were seeing kids show up whose parents had never been to church. The kids had never been to church, but they were coming. And they were hearing the gospel of Jesus, and they were seeing life change. Uh, they were seeing that they, had a, they, they, they could follow a God who created them uh, for that relationship, and that they could be loved by God. So we were seeing that. And so every year we had an evaluation um, as pastors and staff. So I went in on a Thursday and got my evaluation for, the, for that year. And it was a two thumbs up. You're doing great. Love what you're doing. Went through the weekend, came back Monday, was called in by the same people and said, the direction you're taking our youth group is not the direction we want for the church. We want to be a little more inwardly focused and you're, you're kind of driving it more outwardly focused. And so we need you to make a decision. Get in step or go do that somewhere else. So my wife and I prayed for about it over a, a day, <laughs> day and a half. And we went back in and said, we, we won't do that. This is who we are. We, we feel like this has been a, a great um, outpouring of what God is doing here, and, and we've been a part of that, and we, we need to leave this. So we left. No job. I had a kid on the way. Um, that was going to be my fourth kid. And so we went through um, kind of that panic, like, what do you do? And my, my wife's father uh, owns a roofing company, and so he suggested just buy a ladder and start roofing. I'd worked with him off and on, and so I started my own roofing company. I uh, went and bought a ladder and started my own roofing company. And which, if you started any company, you know that it's never hugely successful. In your mind, you're like, oh, it's just going to be awesome. And then you start, and they're like, nobody knows you exist. So 
it's, it's a hard uh, uphill push to even get anything going. But it did a couple things for me because I was angry, I was hurt, I was confused. Like, you know, God, I'm doing, I think what you want me to be doing, we're seeing success. It's, there's just different direction, different paths. And, and suddenly I'm here with my wife and my kids and I have no money coming in. Uh, I have no job and roofing is hard. And one of the things, though, I look at that experience now and I go, God was super awesome uh, and caring for me because he let me be on the roof alone, which I'm an introvert, so for me that's recharging uh, just to be by myself. I can recoup that way, and some of you are like that. Love being around people. I, I enjoy relationships and all that. But for me to recharge, I need to be uh, kind of alone and by myself or at least inside my own head so I can be in a crowded room and I'm, some people think I'm just staring out the window and I'm really just like processing like crazy and, and debrief, you know, de 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 decompressing. Uh, quite a bit. And so on the roof, I had a lot of time to be inside my own head. And God joined me there and challenged me. And over the course of a few months, uh, he, he started working on my heart. And I was able to find not answers to questions so much, but really I was able to, to understand forgiveness. I was understanding God's love, kind of putting the frustration aside, starting to look forward again. Seeing, seeing God's hope and, and care and maybe not exactly the path he's taking me on, but I could see a longer-term plan of God not giving up on me. And so from that, I found confusion, or, or I found comfort. <laughs> I was really confused at God's love. I could, maybe there's a whole other sermon in there somewhere about the confusion of God's love. And I found that God was, act, was, was, was pretty awesome. Um, and it took me to the face of Jesus over and over again um, over the course of two years doing that. Um, and I don't know if it, maybe the sun just baked in my brain um, and it became just kind of gave, you have to give up at some point in that. Um, but I think God was really meeting me, uh, meeting me there. The reality is interruptions in our lives look different. And I wish there was a formula that I could give you. Like anything that comes into your life, here's A, B, and C, and It'll just pass away, and, and it'll be good. You'll learn what God wants you to learn, and your life will move on then, and you can get back to your, your what we call life. There's not. Because interruptions are just crazy, right? You never expect them. I had a great review on Thursday, and then Monday I'm being told, like, hey, all that work you've put in for three and a half years building this group, we kind of want you to be more focused on something else. They, they blindside you. You wake up on a on a, a hot summery morning and you can't breathe. You get rear-ended when you leave church by a truck. You just don't know what those interruptions are gonna look like, do you? When I'm faced with an interruption, this is my thinking. And I don't know if you're similar. I want it to go away quick. I want it to be done with. I want to kind of like address the issue and get back to normal, right? Maybe it's I got to pray a little bit. If I pray harder, God will like make it go away faster. Like, that was what, okay, that's what he wanted. He wanted me to pray more. Maybe he wanted me to be more generous when I'm, you know, eating out or tithing my, at church. Or maybe he wants me to be part of a, a life group, and I haven't been, and I know I should be, so I'm going to join a life group because this thing in my life is hard, and I know, okay, he wants me to just dive in. 
if he wants me to like, you know, call my mom more because I haven't been, so I need to do that. And that'll, that'll get his attention and then he'll give me good things in life again instead of this hard interruption that I'm going through. Really, in my mind, I kind of think that if, if I could do things for God instead of just being with God through those interruptions, that the interruption will go away. And the reality is, they don't. They don't always go away. So what, what are we left with then when they don't go away? When the hard thing in our life, we, we change a lot of things and we try to impress God with the, the things that we can do. And they're all good things, don't get me wrong. But the motivation really is, God, look at what I'm doing so that you can make my life good again. And God is saying, I've got a whole other thing I'm doing here. So what, how do we deal with that? And the, the biggest thing you, that we need to do, that you and I need to do in this, is to remember what we know about God. That he's a loving God. We're told throughout scripture that he loves us, that he cares for us. And sometimes it can be hard to, to, to see that. You know, I made a lot of changes in my life in the first month and a half of roofing and then thinking, okay, the next opportunity is going to be coming. I'm ready, God. I'm ready to receive. And he said, no, I think you need another year and a half in the, the Arizona sun. I need you to lose all your money, all your retirement, sell your cars. I need you to work through a lot deeper on this issue than you think you're going to work through. And ultimately, again, I came to understand and appreciate what he was doing and understand that he was loving me because I knew he was a God of love. I couldn't see it at first, but he was. He was caring for me, and we need to go back to that. So when God doesn't heal things really quickly, I think the woman shows us, she was 12 years struggling with this. And many of you, if you can imagine 12 years of struggling to being an outcast of society, maybe some of you can. Maybe some of you have been struggling for 12 years or more. Maybe some of you walked in this room today and you've got this burden and you're as desperate as she was to find some relief from that. I don't know, but I know there was God who loves us. Some people I know, uh, when I was going through my struggle, and I hear it with other people who are going through struggles, man, if you just had more faith, if you just believed a little harder, your circumstance would change. Or maybe there's something in your life, maybe there's a sin in your life that God is just waiting for you to change, and then he's going to come back and bless you, and your circumstances will change. The book of James, chapter 5, kind of talks a little bit about this. Because we start struggling with whether God loves us or not. It says, is, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. If, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So the question that I have when I read that is it talks about healing and, and prayer and people coming over and, and, and lives being changed. And I, I have to ask the question, is God still in the business of healing people? Does he still have the desire? And if he has the desire, because I think he does, does he have the ability to heal? Because we see, like in the story, we see a woman being healed after 12 years 
and we see a 12-year-old girl. I don't know if those numbers are important, but they were, they're pointed out in the story, so we throw them back out there, and we kind of think about it a little bit. But she is raised from the dead. Do we see that still today? And I can tell you that after being here for a couple years uh, and being in ministry for, for most of my adult life, yes, I hear stories all the time of lives being changed. And not just, well, they took some medicine and things got better. It was, there's no other explanation for this. God did something incredible here. And a life has been absolutely drastically changed because of it. Back in 2000, and I can't think of that. If you know who Conan O'Brien is, I can't think of saying the year 2000 without a flashlight on someone's chin and a, a high-pitched voice dude going, in the year 2000. And if you don't know who that is, you didn't watch late night uh, TV like 10 years ago. So, But anyway, back in 2000, um, I was a youth pastor at a church in Tucson, different church, and uh, I was over the high school group. And we had taken the high school group up to Phoenix, uh, which is about 100 miles away, to a mall right before Christmas called the Arizona Mills Mall. So Tucson had little ones, and it was just kind of a fun youth group activity to get everybody together. And we took a, a ton of vans up and, and a lot of kids and um, my mom uh, had driven some other kids up because we had more kids than we had seats in vehicles, and she agreed, okay, I'll drive up. Um, so she drove some kids up. So we're all up at the Arizona Mills Mall. We're almost done with the day, and my brother, uh, who lives in Phoenix, was already up there, obviously, because he lives there, but he wasn't at the mall. He was just at home. Um, almost done with the day, and I get a call on my cell phone, and it, said, and it was from my brother, and I thought that was kind of weird because uh, we don't generally just, you know, call each other. He, um, but he, he called. And he says, hey, I just got a call from a hospital in Tucson. Dad has been taken, uh, taken to the hospital, and they don't think he's going to live. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to cry. <laughs> he had just had a massive heart attack. So we drove down, which was a great two-hour drive, uh, to Tucson, and leaving the youth group, which... At that point, you know, your focus changes, right? The interruption hits, and everything changes in your world. We get to the hospital, and I, I distinctly remember, like, going into the, the heart, you know, ICU ward. Uh, I don't know what they call it. That's my, you know, professional jargon aside, uh, um, the place where they care for the guys that are really bad. And so I remember going through, like, literally looking through windows, opening doors, like, I want to find my dad. Like, I want to go see my dad. I remember looking in a room. And thinking, man, that dude is messed up. Because I, I, I don't know who that is, but I don't think he's going to make it. So I kept looking. And then finally the nurse is like, no, that, that's your dad. I distinctly remember that. He just did not look good. And so we talked to the doctor uh, later that day, and he said uh, my dad had about a 1% or less chance of surviving. Uh, they'd put stents in, but his heart was super, um, super damaged. But he recovered. Over the next few weeks, he got stronger, but his heart was super damaged. So they were going to, in a heart attack, I guess, that there's, you know, some tissue kind of sort of recovers, but it, it creates scar tissue. It doesn't work right. Uh, other tissue is dead, depending on the amount of lack of, of blood and oxygen uh, going to those parts of the muscle. Uh, they said it was really damaged. And so they were going to repair uh, one of the valves, like replace a valve, um, in, in hopes that it would give him a little bit of functionality in life. And so about, I don't know, maybe a month from the time he actually had the heart attack, a month later, 
they were getting ready to do valve replacement surgery, and they did some, some preliminary tests uh, for that, some kind of some final tests before they do surgery. And they said, well, it's getting a little bit better. So we're going to wait. Within two weeks, the doctor, who wasn't a believer, didn't believe in Jesus, said, I don't know what happened, but it's a miracle. Not only does he have a healed heart, but he has the heart of a 20-year-old. Sorry. God is still in the business of healing. What about when God says no? We've all had times when we prayed really hard for something. We were praying hard for my dad, and he got better. And, we, and, you know, I, and in my mind, I go, that's awesome, right? That is awesome. But there's people we pray for, and, and, and they don't get better. There's things in our lives we pray for. Maybe it's a financial ruin that's coming our way, and we're praying so hard, and we're trying to follow and do the right thing, and God, and, and it's still coming. What about when God says no? Remember in the scriptures, we, we a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, uh, who was a Jewish leader, and he was against the church. So he's persecuting the church. He's literally like going and arresting people, taking them in, and some of those Christians ended up being dead, uh, or at least beaten up and abused and sent back on their way, like, don't, don't preach Jesus anymore. That was Paul's mission in life, was to just grind these Christians into the ground. So he's walking down the road one day with his buddies, on his way to do what he was doing, and... Jesus meets him there on that road and absolutely stops him dead in his tracks. And Paul goes from persecuting the church because of this encounter, because of what he has seen and heard from Jesus himself, to ending up writing most of the New Testament that we see. The majority of it was written by this man, written by God through this man. Complete change in his life, right? And Paul had some physical ailment that we're not told what it is, but it plagued him his entire life. And so we pick it up in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, and it says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. So he saw some stuff. He saw some really cool stuff that Jesus must have shown him that kind of made him like, hey, I've got the inside track on a lot of things going on in the universe. A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So there's a reason. He even knows, that, like he figures out, that, like, hey, there's a reason, like this thing won't leave me. That God has given me this thing, is to keep me humble. Three times I, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And when I read that, what I think, like the question for me is, did my family have more faith that my dad would be healed and Paul didn't? And I think, no, pretty much probably the opposite, because Paul had a lot of faith, and he had reason for that faith. And my family, even while we watched my dad go through this, we, we were having a hard time believing that God was doing something in my dad. Like, we were still, like, not believing what we were seeing, and the doctor was telling us. 
We just kept waiting for them to come back and go, ah, oh, we got the charts mixed up. He's, yeah, he's going to die. And he didn't. And, and yet, Paul still got a no from God. So when Jairus is standing there and his servants come up and say, hey, don't bother the teacher anymore. Don't bother Jesus anymore. Your daughter's died. So come on home. Let's, you can do the morning thing. And Jesus kind of stops his interaction now. He's, he's, he's done showing care and concern for the, this woman. He now turns to Jairus and he says these words, don't fear, only believe. And I think that's a message that God wants us to hear this morning. He wants you to hear this morning. Don't fear, only believe. God knows what you're going through. He hasn't forgotten you. You're not in some spiritual desert where you're all alone. God's right there, even in the midst of it. And he's pouring his love out on you. Another thing that I think it's important to understand from this passage is that interruptions are opportunities for us. Interruptions are opportunities. They're opportunities to see God's power. I got to see God's power in my dad being healed, miraculously healed. And to, to hear a doctor, a heart surgeon, basically say, I don't believe in God. And he said, I don't believe in God, but this was a miracle. There's no other explanation for this. Sometimes you get to see incredible things. You get to see people healed from cancers. And so this interruption in our life is an opportunity to see something incredible that God is really doing. Sometimes it's an opportunity to trust in God's plan when it's hard. Standing in the Arizona heat, um, it's hard to trust in God's plan for your life. It's an opportunity to care for other people through our difficulties. Sometimes God is bringing an interruption in your life, but it's an answer to prayer in somebody else's. And you can be that love and concern and care for somebody else. So it's an opportunity to be part of someone else's life, but yeah, it interrupts you, but you have that, that opportunity. It's an opportunity to show the love of Jesus to someone else. In this passage, we see Jesus absolutely taking time, not just to physically meet the needs that are there, but to come alongside people and care for them individually, face to face, to take that time out of his, out of his day. And we have the same opportunity. If we're, if we're to be like Jesus, and we have the opportunity to share that love of Jesus the same way he did. Ultimately, they're an opportunity to grow. Romans 5 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because, God, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. In our struggle, we can, we can understand new levels of grace and caring and love from God. When we come in contact with Jesus, our lives are drastically and forever changed. A quick aside that I want to make you aware of and, and talk about is sometimes we, we get so focused on just dealing with the interruptions in life and the things that are coming at us that that if we stop and took inventory of how we're doing with our, our relationship with God, our walk with God, we, we might be a little concerned. And I want to tell you today there's an opportunity for you guys, and it's for everybody. 
There's not anyone in here that can't improve in our relationship with God. It can't be drawn closer and deeper into a relationship with God. We have a new thing at ACF that we're doing, and it's called Pathway. And you may have seen the wall out here in the lobby that says Pathway on it. And it's really about growing faith and putting real application action to that. How do you have a relationship with the God who created you? What does that look like? Who are you before that God? Who is the God that we follow? How do I take practical steps to hear God's voice? You know, when I say up here, I heard God's voice when I was laying in an ICU bed. You know, sometimes we picture someone talking to you and, and, well, how do you know that that's God's voice and not just your own head making up things you want him to say? We talk about that. We, we look into real, real practical things of how do we talk to God? How do we hear from God? And it happens every week. The first four weeks of every month, so it doesn't happen today, but 11 a.m. during the service, it's less than an hour long, and it's up in the engage room. But it's the first four weeks of every month, and you can pick, pick it up any place. It's not progressive, so you can jump in any time. Uh, but there's, there's a total of four opportunities for you um, to hear uh, some of God's truth in, in, in really different, different uh, uh, topics as well uh, through that. But I want to encourage you that if, if you feel stuck in your faith or you're like, you know, I just want to maybe go a little bit deeper or maybe have some tools that will help me in my walk with God. Or you're a new believer and you're like, I don't even know what, like, how to open my Bible aside from just like randomly opening it and kind of putting my finger in there. I don't know why I'm not hearing from God. Um, this will give you some, some very real steps uh, to take. So I want to challenge you to consider taking some time out of your life, being interrupted in your life at 11 a.m. Uh, starting next week uh, up in the Engage Room. I challenge you to, to be part of that. Uh, you don't need to sign up. You can just show up up there. Uh, kind of the last main thing I want to see, or I see in this passage that I want us to, to look at is that our actions reveal the depth of our faith. Our actions will reveal the depth of our faith. Faith leads to actions, and that action, and those actions will change everything. James 2, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works or action? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, I have faith, and you have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. When we're, when we're faced with a challenge that's overwhelming to us, an interruption that is, is injected into our life, we have the opportunity to really test our faith and to exhibit radical action as a result of that. I believe God's calling us to view our lives not as starting when we get done with these interruptions. When our lives get done with whatever it is that's got our focus right now that we didn't plan on, then we can start living life. I believe that is our life as God is directing us day by day. I want to leave you with one last question. What action is God calling you to as a result of your faith in response to an interruption in your life? What action is God calling you to as a result of your faith in response to an interruption in your life. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I know there are a lot of 
hurts and frustrations in this room. Lord, we are all going through different things in our lives, interruptions that we didn't account for, that we didn't plan on, that we, that we didn't want, that were unwelcome. And Lord, through it all, you are loving us. Lord, you have our best in mind. Even in the midst of the struggle, Lord, you are there. You are deepening our understanding of who you are, of who we are before you. We have opportunities to see you do amazing things, to uphold us in difficulty, to care for other people. Lord, I pray that we'd be a people who are about living life and living life to the full because we are connected with the God who created us. Lord, I want to pray for those who are struggling right now. Whether it's a health issue, an ongoing battle maybe with cancer or, or a degenerative health issue or a physical ailment. Those who are struggling financially, those who have relationships that are in, in crisis, that are being challenged, that that maybe for, from our perspective seem beyond hope. And Lord, I pray that we would look to you. You are the God of all hope and you are the God of, of amazing things. And Lord, I pray that you would meet each and every one of us where we are today to bring encouragement like you did with this woman, like you did with Jairus. It's not just about the need, but it's about the person there. And Lord, you addressed each and every person and each, of, each one of us uh, is cared for, and, and is on your mind and is dearly loved by you. So Lord, I pray that you would meet each and every one of us where we are. Show us your love. Lord, we do, with expectation, look to you for amazing things to happen. Lord, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.